Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, and you think you'll find it on page, it might be 1756, I'm guessing, is it? Or, um, 1755, one of those two brown Bibles in front of you. I'm going to read to you three verses. I told you this was going to be the last in the series. I lied. Next week is going to be the last in the series. Um, as I sort of started cracking open what this, these verses were saying, it, it became obvious that I needed to, to deal with it in two, two sermons instead of one. So we're going to focus here on verse one, and next week we're going to come to the kind of ultimate um, sort of pinnacle of this whole section and get to the second part, which is about Jesus. Um, so hopefully we'll talk a bit about Jesus today because we really do like him. But um, our main focus is going to be on what he's talking about, running the race, which is in the first verse. So let's read Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, actually maybe I'll just take you back a bit. Let's just read from verse 39. It says, and all these, all these heroes of the faith, all these men and women who have modeled to us what faithful living looks like before God, how we can be mighty in faith, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, us who know Jesus, us who are Christians, us who live on this side of the cross and understand the grace of God in its fullness and power, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God's plan all along was to get a people who loved him. He started way back with Abraham, and he's been gathering momentum like a snowball downhill through the centuries as more and more people have been hearing about the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And then it comes to this. Here's the the ultimate application of everything that we've been talking about in the last 10 weeks. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We've all along been holding out certain sort of potentialities and possibilities of what the life of faith means to you in day-to-day living. All these different examples that have been sort of elucidated to us through this chapter have been showing us what faith can do in all kinds of different situations and circumstances and why faith is so vital for the healthy Christian life. But here are a few of the things that we've been noticing. Let me just give you five. That one, faith pleases God. Do you want to get his well done? Do you want to live under his favor? He says very clearly, the beginning of chapter 11, he says the people of old received their commendation. And he means by faith because he goes on and says a bit later, without faith it is impossible to please him. Faith is absolutely central to living the life that God takes pleasure in. A second thing is that faith enables you to experience closeness to God. I know that we all fall on different realms of the spectrum on how, whether we're thinkers and feelers and all this kind of thing. But ultimately, the, the, the center of every human heart is a passionate desire for intimacy with our creator. It's what, in a sense, completes us because we were made to know him. And he tells us, just in the previous chapter, he, he says it repeatedly, but he says, for example, in verse 22 of chapter 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. He's telling us the only way you can actually experience God's presence and know his intimacy as father is by coming into his presence by faith. 
It means that when you come to pray, when you come to worship, your faith gives you that sense of assurance that I am before the holy God. It's only by faith that you can experience that kind of closeness to God. Here's a third thing. That it's by faith that you can overcome sin. Do you wrestle with ongoing temptations and frustrations with yourself, with, your, with flaws in your character, and with uh, particular pr- proclivities and temptations? Well, he, he's told us in multiple ways, but particularly through the example of Moses, that it was by faith when he was grown up that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. As we'll see, faith and sin are always in opposition to one another. We trust God by faith and take his route instead of the sinful route. Here's another thing, that by faith you can achieve things that you might not otherwise achieve with the time and talents that God has given you. You have a very finite amount of resources, particularly your short life, the blink of an eye in eternity. What are you going to do with it? This chapter has shown us again and again that it is by faith that people accomplish things that God takes pleasure in. You want to live a significant life? Do you want to live a life that has ripples, as it were, into eternity? He says, well, you need to trust God. You need to have faith in God. And he gave us examples of things like this, that through faith people conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. He could go on. Every... Great act accomplished in Christ's name has been by faith. And here was another thing, that faith also pulls you through the worst of life's experiences. Some people don't get to live these lives of um, seeming significance and achievement before God. What they have instead is a difficult lot. But as long as they are walking by faith, God takes pleasure, doesn't he? He gives us all different roads to walk, and he says that it's by faith that some suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, stone, sword in two, killed with the sword, and so on. No amount of suffering you go through is irrelevant to the faith that you have in God. Do you trust him in the worst that life throws at you? These are the kinds of things that we've been trying to explore in this chapter. And so, I hope that up to this point, if you've been tracking with us to now, your desire is to be somebody who walks in and lives by faith. If that hasn't been stirred up in you, then I'm not sure what else I can say to you. God wants us to be people who hunger after him and run after him and trust him and believe in him and exercise faith in him. It matters for you personally, doesn't it? It matters for the kind of life that you live, the trajectory that you're on for the decades that are to come, God willing, or for just this week, for tomorrow. Your faith, your trust in God, your obedience to his will, all of this to do with your faith. But it also matters for us as a church. You know, no one plants a church with the desire that that church be cold and dead and lifeless. There's enough of those out there already. Why would we need another one? You know, some churches you go in and you just feel like there's nothing of spiritual life in this place. God wants us to be a people who collectively stir one another up in our faith. We want to be people whose faith is contagious. This, this is how faith works. That it is something almost that you catch from people around you. That it's a gift, a grace gift to particular groups of people and particular churches. That you can make an impact. And I think that God calls every church that exists to be on mission. It's meant to be outward looking to its environment. Whether that's cities, villages, towns, countryside, whatever. And here we are 
slap bang in the center of one of the greatest cities on earth, do you think that we have an ice cube's chance in hell if we're not a people of faith? God wants us to believe him. Even just thinking about you know, this move to a new venue. Friends, you know, that's, that's impossible. We're not going to be able to afford it unless by God's grace we have the faith to keep moving forward. We think about our desire to see people come to know Jesus. All these things take faith. And so on and on. And now we come to this verse, this, this kind of crescendo. Therefore, he says. And you've got to picture this. It's very easy for us to do because the Olympics are just finished. The picture that's in his mind is of one of the great arenas. And you're there at the starting line, or maybe the gun's already gone, you're halfway through, and uh, you're running. That's the image that this verse is all about. You're running, there's a crowd shouting at you all around. There's problems that could hold you back, and there's you know, the opportunity to potentially win. That's the image he has in mind. And you need to fix that in your head as we move through and think, well, what does is, what is the faith life look like? And he gives us three bits of advice in this verse. And I want us to just consider them. The first is he says this, that you need to pay attention to the right people. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... The question is, who are you listening to? Because, look, this verse, I think, has been misunderstood often. Uh, I remember Matt Chandler, who's a a preacher in the States, telling a story about one of the first times he ever had opportunity to preach. He decided to preach on this verse, and he preached up a passionate message, preached up a storm about, hey, guys, we're surrounded by a watching world, and we need to model to them what Christianity looks like, and so on and so on. And he really preached, you know, a lot of true truths, but none of it came from this verse. And so an older preacher uh, pulled him aside at the end and said, hey, Matt, that was, that was great. But, you know, next time you preach, you should really read what comes before and after the verse that you're preaching from. And so it's not to do with the watching world, this great cloud of witnesses. In fact, I don't think it's even to do with being watched at all. You know, that's what we tend to imagine. We think we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, all these faces in the stands. It's not about all eyes on you. It's not about you being the kind of center of attention and about people just enamored with how you're running and racing. People have gone before you, people who are uh, currently in the faith around you. No, no, this word witnesses, all the time when you come across it in the New Testament, it means testifiers, people who are, who are speaking about what they've known and learned and heard and understood about God and his goodness. And all through the previous chapter, isn't that exactly what they've been doing to us? They've been speaking to us. Gideon, Barak, Samson, all these guys have been speaking to us, testifying to us, witnessing to us about the greatness of God. So when he says to you, therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, yes, we're to imagine these people in the stands, but we're not, they're not there to watch you. They're there to shout at you. And the kinds of things that they're saying are stuff like they're telling you what you can gain through walking with God. That it is worth it. They're telling you what you lose if you, if you fold, if you crumple and bow out and, and walk away. They're telling you that in the end all their suffering, it was, it was, worth, it was worth what they gained in their rewards. They're telling you about how the mistakes they made and And what what a regret they are, but how you don't need to make the same mistakes. You think about someone like Samson. His story is there, worse and all, because 
you're meant to not do the same things he did. This is what this great cloud of witnesses is all about. And the question is, when you listen to what he's telling us here, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, the question to you is this. Are you listening? Are you heeding? Are you taking on board? Is it making any difference in your day-to-day life? The wisdom of the centuries and of the saints. I want to give you a few practical tips as we go through this this message because I think we need to just nail it down to some practical stuff. And here's three things that I think this is telling us to do. The first is this. I think it's telling you to read your Bible to get inspiration. I don't know what your Bible reading habits are like. I know that when you talk about the Old Testament, which is mainly what the focus of this chapter is on, that sometimes you think some of it's obscure and difficult, and some of it you just think, well, those are, those are fun stories when you're at Sunday school with the flannel graph and the coloring in books and stuff, but what relevance do they have to me today? The reality is that he's saying all these examples that have gone before us, they're the people shouting to you, and the question is, are you listening? Are you learning? Are you watching? Are you heeding? Are you taking on board? Our focus should be, To desire to read the Bible, to learn about what faithfulness looks like in a normal life. Are you reading your Bible? Here's a second thing. Are you getting into Christian biography? Now, I don't think there's any good reason to limit this cloud of witnesses just to people in the Bible times. Because we know that a couple of thousand years have passed since the Bible was finished being written. And it's not as though there haven't been amazing heroes subsequently. And I think the reality is that you can be discipled not just through people you know, people that you brush shoulders with, but through the examples of saints that have gone before you. Now, you think about modern missions. So many of the people who've been inspired to go into missions and in, in the field today were, were, have done so because they've read the stories of guys from a couple of centuries ago, guys like William Carey and Hudson Taylor. And they usually name their children Hudson or, or Carey or something like that, just, just to confirm to you that this is why I'm a missionary. These guys inspired me. They gave me passion. Now, what I'm trying to help you to see is, friends, you're not running a solo race. This is very much a relay race, isn't it, really? And watching someone a few laps before you, pelting it, gives you passion and desire to not drop the baton in your round. Some of the greatest people I've ever come across were men and women who've been inspired by the examples gone before them. One of the greatest preachers London ever knew was a guy called Spurgeon, and he ministered just down the road in Metropolitan Tabernacle. You know, from being a little boy, he grew up reading volumes and volumes by these Puritan preachers who'd gone before him. And it, it got into his spirit. It inspired him. It gave him examples. He was discipled by the examples of men who went before him. There's an amazing example that I came across during the, um, this last month during Rio of this. A guy called, uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, Julius Yego, who is from Kenya. And Julius Yego is, um, I don't know if you pronounce it right, but that's how I'm going I'm to go with that. Julius Yego is uh, a Kenyan javelin thrower. And... Uh, when he entered the field he, uh, of you know, being world-class javelin throwers, he was really at the bottom of the table. This guy could throw the javelin well, but not that well. Not well enough to get on the podium. Not well enough to actually make you know, much of an impression. 
But Julius, being unable to afford a coach, being unable to, you know, not having the resources around him, is obviously a man of deep, deep determination and conviction and self-drive because he decided that in order to learn how to throw the javelin better, he'd find out from watching YouTube. And he particularly has been watching the, the throws. There's a guy called Andreas Thorkildsen from, from uh, Norway. Anyone with Thor in their name, you know he's going to be a mighty warrior who throws the javelin. So Andreas Thorkildsen featured in the Olympics in 2008, 2012. And Julius Diego has been watching his videos to learn his technique, to learn the movements, to learn how you get your body behind that javelin. And last year, 2015, no coach, just YouTube, he won the world championships. He's thrown the third furthest throw in all history. That's pretty impressive stuff, isn't it? And a lot of Christians go around moaning and whinging because they think, I just need to be discipled. I need to be mentored. I need someone to tell me what to do. And friends, it's all out there. All the resources you need to learn how to live the Christian life are out there if you're hungry enough. You've got no excuses, friends. Who are your heroes? You know, I think for a lot of us, if our heroes are exclusively people outside the faith, whether it's businessmen or rappers or sports people or whatever it is you consider to be your heroes, no wonder your faith never gets, <laughs> never is never raised. You know, we so easily imbibe, don't we, the world's values on what is greatness. I'm not somebody who watches sports very much, but here's what I noticed, that and I thought it was just lucky to begin with. I used to occasionally just watch big events. So I might watch, like, sit down and watch a World Cup final or a Euro final or whatever. And whenever I watched those matches, the commentators would say things like this. That is one of the greatest goals I've ever seen. Or we will never see the likes of this again. Or the way that person ran that race, it was the best I've ever seen in my entire career. And I'd be sat there thinking, I never watch sports. I'm flipping lucky that I get to hear the best moments that have ever happened in sports <laughs> events ever. And then I realized, they say it all the time. This is just part of the patter of how you engage people in enthusiasm and passion and whip them up into the great storyline of these great heroes. And that's going on all around us. People are wanting to get you excited about the greatness of this person in that field and the greatness of that person in that field. And my, my friends, what I'm trying to tell you is that if you just absorb all your models of heroism from the world around you just because people are singing the praises of this celebrity or that businessman or this sports person, pretty soon your values are shaped by what the world says is great and is good. And as Christians, you need to enter the world more reflectively, more critically in a sense, and choose wisely who your models are and your patterns are because, friends, we have a great cloud of witnesses telling us about what true greatness is in the Christian life. And it's not going to sound like what the world is telling us. Who are your heroes? Who are you listening to? Who are the biographies and the Christians and the heroes of faith? And here's another thing about this cloud of witnesses. Some of them you know. They're your friends. They're your church. And so you have to be wary of the company you keep. You want to live a life of faith? The Bible says, watch who, you're, who you keep company with. Part of this is absolute commitment to a local church. If you've been drifting in and out of this church or another church, my advice to you is put down roots. Commit. Your faith will never grow unless you are rubbing shoulders with people who love Jesus more than you do. What about your friends? Do they inspire you or do they 
pull you down? Do they help you to love Jesus more or are they constantly a cynical voice in your ear? I think as we consider what this means, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's often down to us what voices we listen to. And the Bible is stirring us up to be men and women of faith. So listen carefully to the right people. Here's the second thing then. Therefore, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here's my second point. Friends, you need to get rid of some things. This is a kind of the negative aspect of what it means to run a race for God. God tells you that in order to run, you have to be ruthless. You've got to shed things from your life. And obviously, when we're reading this, the, probably the word that most naturally jumps out of us, at us is the word sin. Every sin which clings so closely. I don't want to spend long here, but I want to tell you that sin is at war with your faith. Think about this. To believe God by faith is to trust him that your greatest joy is in him. That his way is good and perfect and true. To walk by faith is to say, God, unquestioningly, I want to obey you and trust that you have the best plan for my life. Even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment. That's what faith looks like, okay? With the ultimate motivation that God is going to give you greater joy in the end. And sin is always a seduction to steal your joy outside of God's plan and purposes for you. So both routes are a, a route to joy. God promises you pleasures evermore, as Psalm 16 says. He promises you a route to joy, but the question is, do you by faith walk in the way that he has put out for you? Or do you choose another route which by, de- by definition, is a default towards sin. So can you see how f- faith and sin are exact opposites when we put it, lay it down like that? That as your faith grows and your trust in God grows, so your sin is conquered and crushed and dealt with and killed. And whenever you're flirting with and engaging with and walking down a sinful road, it's because you're no longer trusting that God has a better plan for you. Faith and sin are directly in opposition to one another. And he talks here about sins that cling so closely. I think he just means that you and I are very different people. And we all have different tendencies, different proclivities, different natural bents of mind where we are led into particular temptations and sins. Now, we never to use those tendencies to excuse ourselves. I think this is one of the dangers of certainly modern ways of defining um, what we would call sinful behaviors, but the world obviously doesn't use that label. Because more often than not, these things are labeled with words like addiction or insecurity or something which makes you into a kind of a victim that you cannot help it. I recognize there's a complex work at play that as you feed sin in your life, you do become a slave to it. In that sense, you can become addicted to certain patterns and behaviors. But the Christian is someone who recognizes that it is always possible to lay aside every sin that clings so closely. Or else, what is the gospel? Lay aside your sins. But I want us to think a little bit more about, well, what is the weights? Because there's two different words he uses here. He says, lay aside every weight 
and sin. And I don't think he's talking about the same things. I think he's speaking sins of the more obvious stuff in your life because your conscience screams at you when you know that you're offending God by the way you're living. But the ways, what are they? I'd say that they're the things in your life that are not so, not necessarily sinful. They may even be good. But when you look at your life as a race, you understand that there are certain things in your life that hinder you, slow you down, and pull you away from Christ. Often very good things. You know, I'll give you an example of being in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about marriage. And he says marriage is a wonderful thing. But he says when a man gets married, his, his desire is to please his wife. And when he's single, his desire is to please Christ. And he's not saying that marriage is wrong, but he's saying that it becomes a kind of a weight upon you that can divide your desires and your attentions. Now, of course, for a married man, there is absolute mandate upon you to devote yourself to that without reservation for the rest of your life, or a married woman, for that matter. But it gives us a good example of the kind of thing he's talking about here when he says, lay aside every weight. Now, what are the weights in your life? You ever noticed when you're watching... Uh, these successive Olympic Games that have been going on, I, I don't know how many I've seen now. I, I remember vaguely Barcelona, which is in early, I think it's 1992, wasn't it? And uh, I vaguely remember it's the first sort of Olympics I became conscious of. And it seems to me that over the years, um, the clothing has become more sparse, shall we put it that way. And uh, also, you noticed how the swimmers as well, they love to shave their whole bodies which, I, just as a side, I remember once we went to um, Israel when I was about 14 years ago, and I was with a Canadian friend, and he, it was a fashion, I don't know if it's still the fashion, it was the Canadian for guys just to shave their entire bodies. And this guy got into the Dead Sea, and he immediately screamed <laughs> as the salt permeated every pore of his freshly shaved chest. And whoever else, wherever else he'd shaved himself. Anyway, so... My question is, do you think it's necessary for you know, runners to wear so little or for swimmers to shave their bodies? And I think probably the answer is, actually, probably, objectively, it doesn't make much difference in terms of your performance. But whatever edge you can get, you're going to take it, right? And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, when you say, lay aside every weight, he's saying, what are the things in your life which... It's fine if you keep them, but you could also do without them, and maybe by God's grace you'll run a bit faster. What kinds of things might they be? Well, if you think about it this way, what does faith need? Faith needs energy. It needs time. It needs learning. It needs relating to God. It needs dedication to his will and absolute devotion and obedience. And the weights are things in your life that steal any one of those. Steal your energy. Steal your time. Steal your your mind and your learning and your time to relate to God and your obedience, maybe. So you might ask questions like this of yourself. When I look at my Christian life, am I running the way I want to run? Am I running the way I imagined myself running five years ago, now that I've got here? Or am I kind of disappointed with myself that I'm not obeying God fully or I'm not learn, I've not yet learned to pray consistently or I'm not... I'm not in his word, and not getting to know God any better than I did when I first became a Christian. You know, are you running the way that you want to, even by your own standards, never my God's? Here's another question you can ask. How, how am I using my time? Is it glorifying to God? Can I justify the use of my time? 
Now, I'm not wanting us to get into deep introspection and navel-gazing where you can just end up in a puddle just sat there then woe is me for the rest of your life. But friends, it does pay every now and then to look at your life and think, am I just passively going on with my impulses and desires and letting my faith tick along? Because friends, your faith never grows when it just ticks along. You have to learn how to cut things out of your life and grow in your conviction and desire to run after God. What occupies your thoughts? Are you obsessively thinking about certain things, whether it's the next purchase or getting that boyfriend or girlfriend or that husband or those children or that house or that job or whatever it is? What occupies your thoughts? What drains your energy and your passion? And what have you set as long-term goals in your life? When you think, if I get there in 10 years' time, I think I'll be satisfied. And then ask yourself, well, are those things for God or are they competing with your walk with God as weights in your life? When he says, let us lay aside every weight, he's thinking about all those things in your life that can be hindrances to the walk of faith. And I want to focus on one particular thing, which I think deserves special attention here. And it's that of possessions. There's a great quote in the movie Fight Club where Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, um, says this. I mean, he's a bit of an anarchist, so I'm not sure we can listen to him on everything, but I thought this was quite good. He says, you buy furniture, you tell yourself, this is the last sofa I'll ever need in my life. Buy the sofa, then for a couple of years, you're satisfied that no matter what goes wrong, at least you've got your sofa issue handled. Then the right set of dishes, then the perfect bed, the drapes, the rug, then you're trapped in your lovely nest. And the things you used to own, now they own you. We know that as Christians, we, are, we receive everything with thanksgiving. But I also recognize that possessions can become a danger when they become a weight around your neck, stopping you from obeying and running after the will of God. Think about it this way. What do you need in order to run faster in the Christian life? I think one of the things that this chapter has shown us is that you need a, a heavenly mind. A mind that is devoted to, set upon, satisfied with the prospect of being with God for eternity. You need to be heavenly minded. Being heavenly minded means running with a kind of a light touch to the things of this world. Now when I've read my New Testament, there's only one solid, practical piece of advice that I've ever found that tells you how to foster a heavenly mind. A mind that is more concerned with eternity than with this life. The only thing that I've found in the New Testament which is absolute, concrete, practical advice on this is in Matthew 6 when Jesus says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think we have a tendency to feel a bit sorry for ourselves, don't we, at times when we don't have the things that we want. We don't get to go out to the places we want. We don't have the lifestyle that others around us have. This is especially rubbed in your face all the time when you live in a city like this one, which worships materialism. That is the number one god of our age, isn't it? Consumerism. 
And you can begin to feel a sense of self-pity for yourself. Well, what, maybe if I had this, that, and the other thing, I'd be a bit happier. And I feel, oh, woe is me, because God hasn't provided for me in this way. You need to switch that around and recognize if you had all those things. Don't you know what a danger that can be to your soul? And not only that, we need to be people who take pleasure in laying up treasures in heaven. A few practical tips on how you do that. I think you need to be someone who is firstly wary of accumulation for accumulation's sake. Secondly, commit to being steady in your giving. I think that Christian people to be like metronomes in the way that they give consistently to the purposes of God. Paul said at the beginning of every week, you decide in your heart what to set aside. Now maybe for us we get paid once every two weeks or once a month or we have other sources of income and God says, settle it in your heart. What are you going to give? And then devote yourself to it. Don't back down. Don't back off on the months where you feel like I'm not sure I'm going to get through this month. He says, give, give, give. And foster as well spontaneous generosity. A willingness to give when there's that pinch. Whenever you feel the Spirit of God prompting you to be generous, don't ignore that voice. I think the more you ignore the desire and the need to be generous, the more we become self-centered people. And you can never go wrong through being generous, I don't think. One particular weight then is that of possessions. Well, we've talked about the need to pay attention to the right people and the need to get rid of some stuff in your life. Here's the last thing. You need to develop a steady running pace. Now, here's the aim. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, remember, these are people who are flagging that he's writing to here, who are stumbling and tripping, and some of them had stopped and some of them had turned around and decided to quit. This is why he's using this picture of a race. He's saying a Christian is someone who just keeps on going. And mostly, I think, for many of us, our experience of the the Christian race is one of peaks and troughs. Where one minute you are inspired and you sprint. And then the next minute you're discouraged and your head hangs low and your, your pace slows. And things just all seem to go a bit wrong. And the point here, I think, is that the Christian life is meant to be a little bit more like a marathon in the sense that it is that steady, steady running. And I want to give you a few tips here on how I think we can develop that kind of endurance. Here's the first. I think you need to simplify your focus in life. I think you all identify immediately with me when I say that there are just far too many possibilities and avenues for the things that you can chase in this life these days. Careers, goals, desires, ambitions. And people who change their mind every week or month or even every year are generally people who don't get very far in life. But the Christian is someone who settles it once and settles it early that I am going to live for Jesus. I'm not going to be sidetracked from that ultimate aim. You think about how Paul puts it in Philippians. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards the upward call in Christ Jesus. And in a few short years, that guy turned the world upside down through that single-minded devotion to the cause of Christ. So you ask yourself this question. Have you truly settled in your mind that you're here 
to follow Jesus no matter what he asks of you or where he takes you. If that is your single highest goal in life, then you'll be a person who runs with endurance. Single-minded, just want to get to that finishing line. Not drawn aside. You know, they, I don't know if this is mythical or, or whatever, but it's said that in the original Olympic Games in Athens, but, you know, millennia ago, the runners were distracted by people throwing golden balls at their feet. I don't know where you get golden balls from or how you afford to throw them away. So I suspect it might not be a true story. But the, the image is that, you know, these guys would be distracted and they could just, like, turn aside to the left or the right. And uh, the point is, you know, a race, a winner says, no, for me to win is not to, be, to, to make myself wealthy or to go aside to that distraction or that distraction. Friends, are there things in your life right now that are like golden balls at your feet? Distracting you from Jesus. He says, a simple focus. Run with endurance. Run after one thing. Run after Christ. You know what it is that's stopping you doing that. Here's my second bit of advice. I think it's good to develop a rhythm. The call to run with endurance is about the steady pursuit of a single aim. But, you know, a race is never run in staccato fashion. Now, let me just demonstrate for you. Imagine you're at the starting line of a race, 800 meters. It's two laps around the track. And the guy says, go, and this is what you do. Your marks, get set, Go. Now, for any of you who are, like, not here because you listen to the recordings and come over once every two weeks, sorry, you missed out on that. It was a special moment. <laughs> you could think that, mate, if I put in one mighty burst of energy every now and then, I'm going to get somewhere. And, of course, that's not how running works, is it? Running just works like this. And usually not on the spot, but, you know, when you're moving. So it's a pitter-patter. It's a tap, 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 tap. And actually, the Christian life is meant to be exactly like that. Pray, study, give, love, serve, worship, repeat. Pray, study, give, love, serve, worship, repeat. Pray, study, give, love, wor- serve, worship, repeat. If you're not a person who's developed just the rhythm of just daily devotion to God in the simple ways, then I don't know how you imagine you're ever going to grow in your faith or grow in your in your prayer life or grow in your ability to obey and serve and grow in your ability to kill sin in your life. I remember one guy saying to me, look, developing a prayer life is like learning to beat a drum on a rhythm and every morning is that you hear that drum going. It's like your spirit is stirred and your soul moved and it's just that rhythm, that regular rhythm, boom, boom, boom. Far better that than being a Christian who goes to Christian festivals at summers. And if you're not familiar with Christianity, yes, we have festivals. <laughs> and you go to Christian, but they don't have drugs and all that, generally not speaking. Or sometimes they have smoke machines, but you know. So if you're one of the people who just find yourselves getting stirred up every now and then, suddenly you burst for Christ, and then, or even just every Sunday, yes, I'm going to live for Jesus. And then pretty soon your face hits the wall and you're just flagging and discouraged. Listen, I, I don't overstretch yourself. Just go for the simple things. Some people think, well, you know, how do I grow? I'm not growing. How do I grow? How do I, you know, please disciple me. Please, what's the point in us wasting our time on people who won't just do the simple things? Read the Bible. God's given you. What a gift. Learn to pray every day. Pray the Lord's Prayer, if nothing else. Give of what he's given you. Love somebody. Give to your neighbors, show them generosity, worship with the church. 
Through this steadiness, just imperceptibly, step after step, people grow in maturity and usefulness in the kingdom of God. Sometimes to great power as well. But it's that step, 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 step. Develop a rhythm. Here's my final thing. I want to encourage you to foster joy. If you want to develop a running pace, an endurance, running with endurance the race that's set before you, you need to foster joy because I think that one of the greatest thieves of our desire to run with Christ is our tendency to lose our joy in the Christian life. You know, much has been understood of recent years of the psychology of sports. And it's very obvious in sports where it's very much an individual pursuit. Or even team games. You see how a tennis player can be winning in one set. And then if he loses his edge in his mind in the next set, it crashes. You see it in teams, don't you? When they concede a goal within the first 30 seconds of the match. And from then on, it doesn't matter how they can be world class. They're still going to lose to Leicester City. And things just go wrong for them. There was a moment in this recent Olympics when Mo Farah, the uh, 10,000 meter and 5,000 meter double-double gold winner, uh, stumbled, didn't he, in the 10,000 meters. And to everyone's amazement, he got himself up, finished the race, won the race. And uh, when he was being interviewed afterwards, he says, when you fall over, it's very easy because they're jostling with each other in a little tight pack around the track. He says, when you fall over, you just get emotional. You can imagine it, can't you? The defeated feeling in your stomach as you stand up and think, I've just lost precious seconds. How can I possibly pull this one back? And the trouble is with long-distance races like that is that so much of it's won or lost in your mind, whether you have the grit, the determination to take the pain that's coming to you on those final laps. He says, you've got to pick yourself up. And actually for the Christian, it's pretty much like that. Most of us slow down when we lose our joy, don't we? And I want to encourage you, friends, we're not meant to be people who go around faking it, but you know there are solid ways in the Bible that it tells you that you can keep your joy. One of them is, you know, stop sinning. It says in the Psalms that the rebellious live in a parched land. If you find yourself just constantly going back to the same sins, it's, you can't, you know, the Bible says that you're going to feel miserable as a result. Of course you are. But actually one of the most, for, for people who otherwise are just seeking to walk with God but find themselves in a morose place regularly, melancholic, introspective, down. I think the one thing that I've learned over the years has been the most powerful thing to break you out of that is the power of learning to be grateful to God, of gratitude, of thanking him. In fact, you could say that the whole book of Hebrews is about that. Because all the way through, he's just trying to remind the Christians of, of how great Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for them. If only they would learn to say thank you, they'd realize he's better than all the alternatives out there. If they could just say thank you, then all the suffering they'd been through would seem nothing in comparison with what Christ had done to them. Learn to say thank you to Jesus. It's what Paul says, isn't it, in Philippians 4, when he says... The, He says, the Lord's at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. So whenever you find yourself overburdened with care and anxieties and with your your, your head hanging low, he says, don't be anxious. He says, instead, in everything, through prayer, bringing your needs before God and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think people who learn how to be truly grateful and dependent upon God in moment-by-moment living find that even whatever life brings, you can sustain your joy. I don't mean frivolous sort of happy, happy, smiley, smiley fakeness. I mean something deep in your spirit. I am content in my knowledge of and relationship with the living God. And all of it centers on everything that he's done for you. The subject of this great book of Hebrews. The Christ, our supreme high priest, who stands at the Father's side, interceding for you, sympathetic with your weaknesses. Friends, I want us to get on to the next bit next week and finish there. But let me just read it to you again. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Can we stand together, friends? We're going to pray together now and we prepare to worship as well. And I'm going to ask you, what is God saying to you and how is he challenging you? And usually there's two aspects to that, isn't there? Part of it is things that we have to repent of. You know, ways where you think in your conscience, okay, I, I definitely know that God's been speaking to me through this series perhaps, or just today, things I need to shed from my life. The weights, the sins. What is it that you need to repent of? And also, friends, what is it that you need to commit to? Because I think running a race and running the Christian race is above all a commitment. A decision. It's something that God gives you the grace to fulfill, but at some point in your spirit you commit, you decide, you say, this is what I'm going for. I want us to spend a moment in prayer, and we're going to take communion as we sing. But I think communion is always just such a precious opportunity because of the reminder of what Christ has done for you, because of the fact that he broke his body and let his blood be shed for you, that he owns you, that the only right response is to respond with repentance and commitment, isn't it? What do I want to get rid of? What do I want to commit to? So shall we pray together and then we can sing? Father, we thank you that it is before you that we run ultimately. And that you've given us the great privilege of being runners in your great race with the certain promise that we will stand before Jesus one day, our great high priest, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So Lord, as we come to you today, we pray, Lord, would you enable us to turn away from our sins and Lay aside the things that have been distracting us and the weights and the sins that cling so closely. And help us to settle it in our hearts that we live for you. So that that decision touches every part of our lives, our possessions, our relationships, our careers, our ambitions, our families. Lord, we thank you that before you, 
We have strength. We have every resource we need in Christ. So bless these decisions here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.